from Kamal Prescott Road, this is Stalking Art, a series about pairing and conversing with art thinkers and makers on how they ponder. On today's episode, we're going to talk about the incredible life lived by one of the most special and remarkable artists, the late Mali Gobai, by speaking with someone who is very, very close to him, the incredible poet, writer and journalist, Jerry Pinto. He said to a friend, a dog is a piece of living sculpture. Your dog must fit with your aesthetic. (laughs) (laughs) No! A dog is to love you and for you to love. Formally, everything was art, including the choice of a dog. Well, we're so happy to have Jerry on here today to speak about Melly because he was just a fabulous friend to him. Melly didn't have children, but Jerry sort of took on the role of primary caregiver towards the end of his life and did such an incredible job. He also made sure that Melly's artworks that were left behind in America, a lot of them a part of the Gobai retrospective, came back to India for all of us to see. Well, not just that, he's also made sure that Melly's original books and illustrations have been restored, as well as translated into many languages. And, you know, all these efforts have given us a chance to see more and know more of Melly. And it's just such a pleasure to have you on here today, Jerry. My pleasure entirely. Always happy to be talking about Melly. If you could go back to a certain beginning, how did you first meet Melly? I think I remember seeing Melly for the first time at a gallery opening. It wasn't a gallery opening. It was like the space or time when a gallery is in suspension. Uh, you know, when one show is going down and another is going up. So Pushpamala Inn was having a show and she had done these maquettes and of um, in papier mache, I think, of, of children who seemed to have issues, developmental issues. They were kind of, you know, sort of... Uh, um, how shall I put it, mutant children. And Melly was deeply impressed by this work. He said that it was really exciting and he was he kept urging me to, to buy these things. And I was really charmed by the fact that here was an artist who was going to hang a show and he was like telling everybody who would walk in that they should buy those, they should buy these. <laughs> and that I think was the, was the generosity of spirit that he always showed, you know. Uh, that he was interested in other people's work, that he was interested in the work of younger people, that, you know, whether it was Sheetal Gattani or Madhav Imarte, uh, he not only mentored them in a certain way, you know, uh, visiting their studio, looking at the works that they were doing, also writing for them, you know, catalogue essays, or at least notes for the catalogue. So it was a, a genuine openness which I liked about him. Uh, and it was a generosity of spirit that also endeared him to me. I think the next time, a uh, couple of times that we met, it wasn't uh, it wasn't personal. It was, I walked into uh, the Jahangir Art Gallery and I remember looking in, uh, into the kemol that was on top of the Jahangir Art Gallery. Mm-hmm. So it was always that way. You went into the Jahangir Art Gallery and you just like thought, I, you know, why am I even doing this? I just like, I like, Here again is one more young person or middle-aged person painting ahead of a Buddha. Mm. Here is another person painting a woman walking after a bath in a sari, very (laughs) tightly draped around her. You know what all these paintings are? You just kept thinking, I'm so tired. Then you'd go upstairs to Kemold and suddenly there would be the art. Mm. 
Yeah. It would be like, <laughs> like you were awake and alive and something was changing. And often it was, um, it was interesting art. I mean, I didn't always, you know, see in, in everyone's head, there is, an art, there is an art collection, right? So it's not an art collection that you're ever going to have because you can't afford it. But you walk into a gallery and you think, that's part of my art collection. It's in your head now. So often you'd go in and you think, well, oh, these are nice. I mean, that's fine. But you're not, not my style. Not, but you can see that they're palpably, obviously, within the definition of the word art. Right? What really fascinated me about going into my first Gobhai show was that I felt my definition of art was being challenged. That now this was obviously something that was happening here. But it, I couldn't fit it. I couldn't say, okay... Here's uh, elongated women in the Anjali Lamin style. Here is uh, those nice, lovely, elegant pastel colors that Sabawala deals in. And so many people imitated. This was, was Swayambhu. It seemed as if those paintings had been found somewhere. And they were natural pieces of dead leather or decaying flesh. Or sometimes almost like a charge of necrophilia in the air, like there's something live and vibrant and even sexy about these things, but they were obviously just also very strange. So this is that moment when you are in the presence of the masterpiece, because it is not something you can fit into the way you have perceived art. Now you are being challenged to see it again. Now you are being changed by this experience. And in the future, when you see something like this, or when you see art, this will also be part of your seeing. So your nazaria, your lens, your prism, your focus, your focal length, everything has been changed. The physics of your viewing experience has been changed. And that is when you discover the artist whom you truly love and whom you can deal with. Now, very often, you know, Eunice Souza has a lovely poem where she says, better to meet in poetry. <laughs> Don't want to meet poets themselves. Poets can be a little disconcerting. <laughs> but uh, better to meet in their poems. And often you feel nice to meet art, not artists. But then you meet Met Melly, and Melly himself was an interesting... He was a work of art himself. In the sense, uh, he was startling, he was different. He often... Uh, he was Mufat, he said what he thought. When he walked into a show, it did not bother him. He wasn't concerned about concealing his response. So he'd begin to frown and his face would slowly condense and you'd think, okay, doesn't meet with your standards, right? Don't say it, Melly. Don't say it. <laughs> Just like, let it go. Yeah. Eat the canapes, drink the wine, leave. <laughs> but it, he was transparent, actually. And when, when he went into something that he liked, there would be that I say moment on his face, which was also an opening out, like a, a complete, like, you know, and then there were people who grew on him, like artist friends of his who he would like, be doubtful and hesitant about going to their shows. And when he was there, he'd be intrigued and looking and you could see his nazaria change. And that, I think, was the wonderful thing about the relationship I had with Mehdi, was that it was an education for me in his seeing and in my seeing. So my seeing was very different. We often completely disagreed on things that... You know, that, uh, I mean, he was very into tapiers and I couldn't see the point. But there was also that ability for, uh, we could find common ground in, within which we could talk. And for a writer, that talking is important. Yeah. yeah? 
That's because if true. we can't put it in words, then we're defeated and we're angry. And a painting can often defeat you and make you angry because it's not yielding easily to the verbal. And if it yielded easily to the verbal, it wouldn't be a painting. So the relationship between the writer and the painting is always fraught. Okay, because our sense is, I want to tell everybody what this painting is. Mm. I want, I want it to yield to me, and it's not. And so I was defeated by Manley's paintings. Mm. You know, very often, like I would walk into that studio and say, "Just stop now! Don't do anything more." And he'd laugh and say, "No, no, that section has to be brutalized a little further." And I said, yeah. "Have you heard yourself?" You talk like a conquistador of the canvas, you know, like you're going to yeah. take it over and, and control it. And, and at the same time, there was the recognition that there was a process going on mm -hmm. and he would lose at some point. Like he, I remember when he, when he discovered this paper that came from Gujarat, handmade paper. Mm -hmm. And he said, look, it's like it's got life of its own. You know, mm -hmm. it, it responds to me. It pushes back at me. Because the paper itself had a ripple and a curve and a shape inside it. So when you start with the idea of like the flat canvas mm -hmm. and here you have something that is already sculptural in the sense that it is responding to you in that three-dimensional way. The urge to then control it is at war with the urge to celebrate it. How can I make this into what is in my head and in my gut and nerve and sinew and blood vessel? How can I make all that come here and still let this be? Let this cultural presence be. And if you look at maybe the, the tension, the control is on the point of breaking. It's always on the verge of like that whole thing. The, the, the grid is going to blow up. And something is going to like leap out at you that will not be very pleasant. <laughs> <laughs> That's that feeling that you get. I think so. Uh, so for me, even looking at the process of the painting, mm -hmm. looking at where it started from the from you know just that uh, that plane, and he'd sit there with his goluas for many years, a smoker of goluas, is that all his friends who enjoyed uh, playing into this uh, notion of the bohemian painter in his <laughs> Darbanga mansion flat. Yeah, sure, bohemian painters should be starving in garrets. But he was there in his Darbanga mansion flat smoking a goluas and looking at the canvas and waiting and waiting for the moment when it would say, okay, now come with your mum's black thread from her sewing kit and stick the first line. Warp space and time change things, begin the act of making this yours. And then when the point at which it stopped was when it was no longer his, when it insisted on an independent life of its own, when it pushed him away, that's what he said, when the painting has the ability to say to you, nothing more, leave me alone. And it, this sounds like such, a, you know, gobbledygook even when i'm listening <laughs> to it i'm thinking it's like jerry make it make it make it real make it real make it make it what they can get but i'd say just you know look at a good rep reproduction of a medley work while you're listening to this if you have a medley painting in front of you that's great just look at it and then and then think about this and maybe then you'll see what what that that dynamic is like in the sense that often you feel uh, that this might be something that could burn or grow you don't know this wonderful moment, I remember. Melly had this thing about um, wax. And he said, do you know wax is 
pasteurized. So I said, yeah, I mean, you know, things uh, tend to be pasteurized. He said, I don't want to use pasteurized wax. I want to use wax before it has, anything has been done with it. Like raw, mm. right from the hive. So we went looking all over Kalba Devi and Bhuleshwar and finally we met this young man who said, uncle to Melli, upsetting Melli. <laughs> <laughs> don't use unpasteurized. Meri mano, take good pasteurized wax. We got a ball of wax. And in the car, he kept saying, smell it. It smells of honey. You know? mm. And he used it on, on the surface of a canvas. And he said, see, you can tell it's unpasteurized wax. And I, I don't know, but yeah, if you say so. But this painting got sold and then, you know, a couple of years later, I said, told me somehow shamefaced. Um, the owner of the painting rang up and said, it's changing color. <laughs> so we thought, I mean, you know, wow. We went over and found that fungus was growing on the oh. painting. Because unpasteurized wax is, has a trace of honey. And a fungus is a spore in, our, in Bombay's nice, warm, you know, humid air. Yeah. Floated past and... Took a deep sniff of this honey and actually like a, and once fungus gets its claws, mm. its microsporangia or whatever it is into yeah. your painting, you know, he had to give him another painting oh, wow. and that ended the relationship with unpasteurized wax. <laughs> now, Melly didn't start off his career as a quote-unquote full-time artist, but how did he progress to be one? You know, I think at some level there was always that that it was an, a, an odd family uh, in the sense the father was a painter, a weekend painter. So his father left behind a whole stash of, of watercolors and the really lovely watercolors, the kind your dadi ma would put up in her. See, because it's in scenery types, you know, like I mean, Durvadiyo mein kahin hai, this is a jungle like, and one tree and one hill and all, very nice, lovely things. Sterile, similarly. weekend painters, but when he was in college, uh, at St. Xavier's College, he would go to Shavak's Chowda's gallery somewhere very close by in Dobitalao and do drawing lessons with Shavak's Chowda. And because Shavak's Chowda's, you know, wife was, sisters were dancers, they would go to Shanmukananda Hall and he would make them sketch in the darkness. So you actually, your pencil had to move and you had to catch that moment, not even looking at what you were doing. Okay. It reminds me of a story that, uh, that the Gandhi family told me, you know, Rashna Gandhi was uh, taught by Lady Temple. Lady Temple was an art teacher in Bombay. And she was the art teacher at Cathedral in John Kong, you know. And she would tell her students, never use an eraser. Never use a pencil. Go straight at your painting with the brush. You know, that kind of like, charge, charge at your canvas, paint it. Uh, Anjali Lamen might have been her student. Okay, so Lady Temple on one side, Shavak Chowda on one side, medley drawing here, theatre unit is going on, you know, people are acting and what a lovely world, yeah. Ibrahim Al-Kazi sits there with a Gupta period head, you know, on his desk in sandstone and Melly and he are chatting and he's playing with this, this beautiful head and finally at the end of the evening, uh, Al-Kazi says, take it away, it's yours. So Melly says, I can't, this is like a, no, I have loved it. It has given me great pleasure, but I can see from the sensuous way of handling it, it will give you even greater pleasure. Take it. In this way, Bombay educated its, its own. Mm. In this way, we built this network of, of theatre and art. 
And you know, you remember there are drawings that Menli did for uh, Sehmat after the uh, the riots of 1992, which when can be traced back to the house of Bernarda Alba and the shapes of the costumes that Alkazi had on stage, and that can be was also something that he saw the the perfect forms into which when he was living in Himachal, uh, when you know there's a there was a mourning and the women would you know sort of throw out their arms and. You would say with natural grace, and like Iren Papas, you know, in in a Greek tragedy, they would be mourning, and the sounds of their voices would be perfect in the hills. So that's it. You can see a sentimental journey. You can see a an education. You can see an aesthetic education in these in these glimpses that are happening. Acting in a play, watching transfixed as. Thunder. He said, "Do you remember the house of Bernarda Alba with you know this thundering, banging on the on the doors as a as a love-starved horse is thundering against the stable doors? That image inside his head. Those Himachal. This tragic, tragic morning. These drawings. This shape. Reading the Geet Govinda. George Geet has come from uh, Sri Lanka. He's a painter. He's also translated the Geet Govinda. Melly's reading the Geet Govinda. The the." Gorgeous, glorious, glowing paintings that we brought back from from New York are references to Vaidhuriya, references to Radha Krishna, to you know the stain, the love stain of the blue god and the yellow breast of his lover. So these are this is the way. I mean, you, he said, you should not use color unless you could not draw your next breath. If you could not use that color. Each color had to be demanded of you, and demanded by the next breath not being possible. So this suspicion of color that he had, I think, was really a response to his environment. Mm-hmm. You know? So when I remember when I was uh, I was in New York once, standing at a traffic light, and on the other side was a whole bunch of New Yorkers who were coming at me, and I thought, "March of the Zombies! Everyone's in black. Everything is black." And it was. near winter because that's the time i could afford a cheap ticket to new york autumn deep autumn no color gray skies gray and gray buildings behind black clothes and melly is painting in that manhattan apartment big huge splashes recreating india bringing back the geet govinda into his time you know the bull the passion the flute the blue just glowing and he comes back to india and he walks down the street and the lambadi women are walking towards him and he would always say with natural grace carrying the you know the uh, the baskets on their heads never even touching the baskets their spines completely erect but their bodies tired with having worked all day in the sasoon docks and the sari is glowing with color when everything around you is glowing with color how can you challenge it so you withdraw from color you withdraw into this tenebrous dark world and you enter the space that for melly was very important the occult like this darkness sacred darkness the garbhagriha i remember when i came back from uh, wandering around in, in south india with my friend arundhati subramaniam and we went to tiruvannamalai and because arundhati looks like a natural born kind of you know like ayyar who should be ushered right into the garbhagriha i also got ushered in and that evening aarti conducted with complete like you know it's an everyday aarti and the moment of um the revelation is they throw open a window 
you see the night sky and they close it again. So that's God. The universe. Everything. Shiv. Everything. I told Mendy and he said, whoa. <laughs> Even that was, that was how he understood and appreciated God. He and I think his friend uh, Meera Devi Dayal scouring Buleshwar for eyes. The eyes of the goddess. Mm. You take a stone, you uh, do your uh, sindur, you do your shendur, you do your haldi, you do your lime, you paint and you put the eyes on and it is God. This, this awakening of the artwork, no? very important and very significant to him. Right up to the end when he did Nothing is Absolute with uh, Ranjit Hoskote as a, as a show at the, at the Jahangir Nicholson. He was constantly, and for me it was a kind of push-pull thing because I'm a rationalist at, at heart. So, you know, this whole idea that, um, oh, there's a space in my wadi in Goldward where this uh, young woman killed herself. So that's her space. It is a tree where something terrible happened. A young woman killed herself. It's still a tree. That's my attitude to things. His attitude was that's, a, that's now a space. It's charged in a certain way. Sure, if you believe. Not that I do. So I think there were times when we diverged about many things very clearly. But there was a fundamental understanding about, uh, I think, what uh, made me a good friend of his was because I knew he was a genius. You know, and then you, you are clear that you know, someone is a genius. They know it as well. <laughs> Not going to make you their worst enemy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I first met you at Melly's home come studio where... You know, he's collected all these little objects and carefully placed them all over the space. And, you know, you were kind enough to share little anecdotes about them. And through that, I was sort of able to see pieces of Melly. So I just wanted to know, do you ever look at something and think, oh my God, that's so Melly? All the time. I remember, you know, uh, for instance, um, this is one of those stories. (laughs) Melly always had a dog. So the dog was was a... part of the of the whole deal and then one day i remember going into the into the studio and uh, he said you might be surprised at some point because there's a crow so i said crow so he said yeah you know we went for a walk and the dog was trying to get under this thing and i looked under the truck and there was a crow there so i got the uh, boys to rescue the crow and it's now here so i said it's in a cage and stuff so he said no it's not in a cage it's free Melly could shit on a canvas. He said, might improve it. (laughs) So I have the feeling that if it was an, uh, it had been a wounded pigeon, Melly would have brought it to the top floor of the Kemold Art Gallery in the Queen's Mansion where there's that uh, young man who rescues birds. But it was a crow. It was black Mm -hmm. and grey. It was aesthetically exactly right for the studio. There was a dark, burnt boxer. There was a crow. Earlier, there was a saluki, Melly riding his bike with the saluki, Salim, pounding close by him, riding wow. through Central Park, completely aware of the glorious gorgeousness of the combined image that he was creating. He said to a friend, a dog is a piece of living sculpture. Your dog must fit with your aesthetic. <laughs> no! A dog is to love you and for you to love. For Melly, everything was art, including the choice of a dog. And having a crow loose in the studio. As I said, you know, the family was a very uh, different family. So uh, Mr. Gobhai was a painter and one day uh, 
Mrs. Gobhai, that is Melody's mother, Auntie Perrin said to me, you know, I told his father, I'm really worried that he's not settling down. Uh, so his father said, why should he settle down? He should rise up. <laughs> and I thought, yeah, everyone should say that about their kids. Now rise, don't settle. And uh, then Melly, you know, he was a art director at J. Walter Thompson in Bombay. He was renowned. He was a legend. Okay. Um, you know, in those days you did roughs. Meaning you did a rough drawing of what you thought the ad would look like. You sent it to the client. The client would approve and then you did the final touch-up and, and that sort of thing. Bobby Koka looked at his roughs for the Air India campaign and said, these will do. These are the drawings we will use. Their roughness is their strength. He went to London, worked there, went to New York, worked at J. Walter Thompson. Then one day decided that he had to quit. By this time his father was dead. His mother came for a kind of like, came to see America. And she brought with her her the famous go-by pearls. And she told Melly, you know, uh, use these. At some point you might have to sell them. Sell them, you know, subsidize your art. Sell them, but don't leave them lying around. Because pearls absorb bodily oils and their luster increases if they are in contact with the human skin. If you leave your pearls just in a box, they will stop being as shiny. So very often Menli would remember what his mother said and you know, you'd pick up those pearls and put them on his chest and continue working. And you know, he had a purple uh, lungi <laughs> at that point. So he was wearing a purple lungi. So then it was the habit of all this group of bohemian artists and whatnot to pretend to be immigration. Okay. So very often they would ring each other's doorbell and say, immigration. And he said, cause a storm upstairs of people trying to find their documents. <laughs> So someone rang the uh, buzzer downstairs in the Manhattan walk up and said, immigration. So Melly said, fuck off. So he said, um, no, sir, really immigration. <laughs> Melly so shaken by this, forgot that he was wearing pearls, was bare chested and, a, and a, a purple lungi and opened the door. And this immigration officer came in and sat down and chatted to him and said, you must be an artist. <laughs> and then he looked down at himself and realized that he was kind of like, what else could he be in pearls and a purple dhoti with all this painting around him? <laughs> you know, through these anecdotes that you're sharing and also with his retrospective at NGMA or the new exhibition we've opened with at Camol. I really feel like I've gotten to know him and also a lot of newer, younger audiences have as well. So how do you think he'd feel about that? And also, how do you think he'd feel about the exhibition we have on right now? I think he'd be delighted with the younger audiences, okay? I think every show that happened without Melly's interference would upset him immediately. <laughs> I think the retrospective was called something like, don't ask me about colour. I don't think he'd have liked that name. He didn't like names. He generally hated the idea of naming anything, okay? Um, he was manic. I mean, you can ask Kemal, you can ask anyone who ever hung a Melly show. He was manic about placement, about lighting, I mean, fidget, 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 until it was what he wanted it to be. So, while the fact that, you know, a whole new bunch of people is, is responding to his work, that would, be, would delight him endlessly. But a show that is hung without Mendy's supervision would immediately be cause for suspicion. <laughs> because he cared. He didn't care just about the painting. He didn't just care about the market. He didn't just care about critics. He cared about that work on that wall doing its unsuspected magic 
on the person who comes in and confronts it hmm. wow that's that's so lovely to know and you know i really feel like through this entire conversation for anyone that appreciates and has seen melly's work uh, including me has got in a chance to sort of get to know him in a very special and intimate way so thank you for that and you know thank you for sharing such incredible stories of what seems like an amazing life that he had thank you jerry anytime my pleasure and thank you <laughs> bye